Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. In this episode, we consider how we can glean hope from the darkest moments of the past and what we can learn as we go through dark times today. Okay, I just want to say really quickly before we lose all of our listeners, yes. I fear if I was listening to the word dark and darkest right now, I would just press stop instantly. But it is incredible, I think, how uplifting this interview was. We really left feeling warm and light and joyful. So please keep listening for the opposite reason that you were just about to stop. I think it'll leave you feeling good. Yeah. The day we recorded this, at the end of the day, Nick, my husband, said, what'd you do today? And I stopped and I thought, and I said to him, I had one of the most extraordinary conversations of my life today. I mean, it really was. Yeah. Why don't you say a little about our wonderful guest? Yes. Dr. Edith Eager is an eminent psychologist and one of the few remaining Holocaust survivors old enough to remember life in the camps. Edie and her sister survived Auschwitz, although their parents did not. Edie's worked with veterans, military personnel, and victims of physical and mental trauma. In 2017, she published a memoir called The Choice, which told the story of her survival in the concentration camps, her escape, healing, and journey to freedom. Oprah, as in Oprah, said about Edie... (laughs) I will be forever changed by Dr. Eager's story when Edie appeared on her show. So thousands of people around the world have written to Edie to tell her how the choice moved them and inspired them to confront their own past and try to heal their pain. And they kept asking her to write another kind of how-to book. And so last month, Edie published a new book called The Gift, 12 Lessons to Change Your Life. Fun fact, we recorded this interview on Edie's 93rd birthday. It was so fun to learn that. So we chose this topic because it's been a bit of a tough stretch and it's easy to feel a little hopeless, to feel powerless, and to have that affect how we're doing. So we thought reading a book that tries to help people through those kinds of feelings might be really useful. She does discuss in The Gift a number of issues that are relevant today. She talks about how to deal with people whose views you find abhorrent. She refers to that as finding the Nazi in you. She talks about how to combat the feeling of being a victim and how really harmful that can be. And she talks about how you can fight feelings of hopelessness and powerlessness through choice. So let's get right to it. Edie uses a great metaphor to describe the paralyzing effect of victimhood. As she says, victimhood is rigor mortis of the mind, Uh, which when she said that, I thought, wow, that's really cool. In other words, it creates a feeling of being stuck in time, that feeling when you can't persuade anyone of anything or affect any kind of change. Here's what she has to say about breaking free of that mindset. 
Are you revolving or are you evolving? I like the idea of metamorphosis. Look at life like a butterfly that we go through the ages and the stages of development and then we let go, let go, let go of the pain, let go of the anxiety, let go of most of all the fear that we created because fear and love will never ever coexist. And so when we're dealing with people whose views we find repugnant or threatening, how do we deal with that? How do we not go to that place of fear? We just say to ourselves that people don't come to you, they're sent to you, and the most obnoxious person is your best teacher. So what you don't like in someone else, you want to look at that in you. Find the Hitler in you. Find the judge in you. Find the part in you who you really can't stand and actually you can because you're still alive it's easier to die than to live I was very suicidal after I was liberated because my parents didn't come home and I got up in the morning and I was hit with reality and I wanted to die and I'm so glad that I chose to be for something, for life and for celebration. And today is my birthday. And oh, I tell, happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> I tell you today that you have to be old to be young because when you live in a present and when you think young, you don't care about the numbers. And most of all, you give up the need for other people's approval. And yet, I'm still insecure when a person will tell me that, oh, I really liked your book, but... (laughs) And then I'm thinking, oh, what did I do wrong? Yes, yes. (laughs) So I have yet to arrive. To be human means you're fallible, you're going to make mistakes, and I accept that. Good enough is good enough. It's so hard to let go of that perfectionism and the desire for other people's approval. This is a a really fascinating and I think maybe difficult idea for a lot of people, the way you describe it, that um, we each have a Nazi within us. Yes, well, I don't think we're born with that. We learn it. We're born with joy. We're born with love. We learn to hate. We learn the us and them mentality. And I think it's a very difficult time right now because we don't know what's going to happen next. Mm. Yes, and we were not prepared for this at all. So I'm telling people that even in Auschwitz, I was able to control the way I responded to the external circumstance. Not reacting, but responding. If you were reacting... You may have touched the guards and you were shot right away. So it was very important for me to be able to change hatred into pity. 
and I began to feel sorry for the guards, that they were brainwashed, that they told me every day that I'm never going to get out of here alive. And when we took a shower, we didn't know whether uh, gas is going to come out or water. And we are right now in that situation that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's a very difficult place to be in a limbo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think right now, as you're suggesting, it's also particularly hard to keep hopeful. It's easy to feel hopelessness. And you've said to ask how hope can survive is to confuse hope with idealism. What does that mean? To me, that means that the idealists, when they come and they don't find exactly what they're looking for, they can become very sarcastic. And that's really not a very healthy humor. I think to be a realist, to know that we are in a challenging time in our lives, just like I was in Auschwitz, I remember that I was told every day, I'm never going to get out of here alive. I could not change the external environment. They could throw me in the ovens any time, mm. but they could not ever murder my spirit. Mm. So that's what I'm bringing for people to empower each other spiritually because the spirit never dies. Right. We're born with it and we die with it. And that's what my sister told me when I was told that my parents are burning in a gas chamber. Mm. And my sister hugged me and she said, the spirit never dies. Mm. And so I remember also that my sister, who is still alive, was the pretty one in my family. And my sister Clara was a child prodigy playing violin and my parents really wanted a son. And then I came along. And I remember that when I became cross-eyed, my sisters blindfolded me. When they took me for a walk, they didn't want anyone to see what an ugly sister they had. Really, really. My mother told me, I'm glad you have brains because you have no looks. And you see, I'm not angry at my mom, but I became a very learned So I tell women, you're not a strong woman. You are a woman of strength. Mm. That you look at life from inside out, not to wait for someone to make you happy. Because the more dependency, the more depression. So I hear you saying that we can control things like our own interests and our own sense of self and how we respond. Yes, which to me in this time makes me think, well, I can't control the election. I can't control how police officers behave. I can't control so much, but I can control what I do. And that's helpful. But my question to you is, to what extent should we still continue to try to fight against all of these issues? Well, let me tell you that when I came to America, In 1949, I experienced Nazi Germany and communist Russia. And when I worked in a factory doing piecework, 
and I went to the bathroom, one of them said colored. And I realized there is prejudice, which means to prejudge. And love is not what you feel, is what you do. And I joined the NAACP. I marched with Martin Luther King. I even got a hug. I was singing with the mamas and the papas <laughs> in Washington. I go way back, way before you were born, because that was in the 1960s. 63, I believe. And so I think today I want to do everything in my power to see to it that we will empower each other with our differences, that you can be you and I can be I, but we're going to be much stronger that we can hold hand in hand and really empower each other with our differences. First, I'd like to thank you for thinking that I'm much too young to have <laughs> to know who the mamas and the papas are, because I, I was born in 1967, so although I wasn't dancing in the streets, I, I definitely was around back then. Um, you write in this new book of yours, The Gift, that it's important to face our negative feelings and to invite them in and keep them company. Yes. But of course, it's also important to let them go, and so... How do you suggest we strike that balance? You know, how do we acknowledge the fear and anxiety, for example, that we may have and also keep it from overwhelming us? I think that your thinking creates your feelings. It's very important to think about your thinking and pay attention what you're paying attention to. Before you say anything, ask yourself whether it's very important and most of all, is it kind? It's very, very important to pay attention to your self-dialogue because it can change your whole body chemistry. Mm -hmm. So when you get up in the morning, you say, uh, Julie, I love you. I honor you. And because self-love is self-care, it's not narcissistic. Remember that, Julie girl, Okay, I'll try. Julie Sternberg, <laughs> tell yourself there'll never be another Julie girl, and no one can do the way I can do it. You know what? I'm so lucky because I have a recording of your voice saying that, so I'm going to just keep playing that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I'll remind you. <laughs> Thank you, Eve. Thank you. I wonder, though, um, can it be depressing to think of yourself as having power when what's holding you back is beyond your control? I think I would like to tell you that when we were liberated, people would go through the gate, and after that, they would come back and sit down. Mm. See, because we were free, and you got to read the book Escape from Freedom by Eric Fromm, who was really one of my mentors. And, you know, you want to know that there is no freedom without responsibility. Mm -hmm. And when you're a victim, it gives you a kind of an entitlement to do nothing because there is no victim without a victimizer. And that's why children blame. But while you blame, you're still a child. I don't care how old you are. So children say, you make me angry. 
but there is no way you can make me feel anything. I found this interview a little dizzying because Edie turns so much on its head, and I just have to think about it. Mm. What she said, for example, freedom can be hard even for folks who have been imprisoned in Auschwitz. That's not normally something you think, but I can see there's a human temptation to run from freedom and to really sort of imprison ourselves by blaming others because it's easier to blame others than to really take responsibility. It's so much easier. I mean, let's be honest. (laughs) And I'll go even further and, and say, not only is it easier to blame others, indignation, there's something about it, I hate to say, there's something about it that feels good. Energizing. Yeah. Something else she says is we all have Nazis within us, and that, again, turns our usual thinking on its head. And I'm like, I can't be a Nazi. I'm a Jew. My father and my grandparents and my father's siblings all fled Nazi Germany in 1936. I don't have a Nazi within me. But of course, I could have been born on the wrong side of history. I judge others. I hate. Mm -hmm. I fail to act when I should act. We all have to fight against those qualities in ourselves, all of us. Yes, we all do. Uh, One thing that Edie said, she says, we have to turn hate into pity. And I think we do that in part by acknowledging that we have the same feelings in us as the people we are hating or judging. She says, you find the Hitler in you in order to find compassion for people Mm -hmm. you can't stand. Right. It's a brilliant idea, but it's hard. Changing your mindset, just change in general is really hard. Edie says she's reminded of her experiences in the Holocaust every day still, even though it's been 75 years since the Holocaust ended. And and she says she's always going to struggle with those emotions. It was only after her return to Auschwitz with her daughter 40 years ago that she even really began to acknowledge the emotions and grapple with them. Before that, she kept them from everyone. She never talked about her time in the camps. We talked with Edie about post-traumatic stress and how it's not just a reaction to what happened, it's also a reaction to what didn't happen. Here's what Edie said. You know, there is post-traumatic stress, not a disorder. We pathologize too much. That's not a disorder, that's a reaction to a loss. It's all about not what happened, but what didn't happen. Let me give you an example. My granddaughter asked me to buy her a beautiful dress so she can go to her dance in the school. So, of course, I am a big sucker. I bought (laughs) her a beautiful black velvet dress, and I came home, and out of the blue, I began to cry. I didn't understand why am I crying because I just bought my precious granddaughter, Lindsay, a lovely dress. And then I came to the realization that I didn't cry because I bought Lindsay a dress. I cried because I never went to a dance. So that's why the journey that I take you has three steps. Is grieving, feeling, and healing. You cannot heal what you don't feel. Mm. 
There was a part of your book where you talk about trying to change personal behavior and overcome weaknesses, and you suggest that when we're trying to change our behavior, we ask the question, is it good for me? Yes. And I have to confess something, which is I read that section of your book while I was lying on the couch. I hadn't exercised. I had a bag of candy next to me, and I have prediabetes, so I'm lying on the couch, (laughs) you know, downing sugar, no exercise, and thinking about, is this good for me? And of course, this is terrible for me. But at the same time, I was feeling so good. It felt so good to be lying on the couch and eating a lot of sugar. So this is not, I mean, your, your book is about much more important things than this, But my silly story does illustrate my question, which is, what do we do when something that we know isn't good for us long-term feels really good short-term? Well, I tell you, God gave us temptation. There is a little voice in you, the hell with the diabetes. I want it. Why? Because I want it. So temptation God gave us so we can practice the freedom of choice. The candy is just sitting there. It's up to you whether you're going to reach for it or not. So who's boss? <laughs> the candy becomes your God. Yeah. Temptation so is here to stay. Yeah. I'm sorry to say this, Eve, but never has your name felt more appropriate than in this particular moment. Oh, Eve, <laughs> Eve, yes. yes exactly. <laughs> and freedom of choice yes, yeah, and, and temptation. Oh, yes. It didn't even occur to me. That, <laughs> yeah, I guess I was the right person to ask that question. Right. Um, in your experience as a psychologist, what do you think is the most difficult mindset for people who have experienced trauma to overcome? I have a problem with that word overcoming. Hmm. I don't overcome. I'm reminded every day, almost. I remember I'm writing in my book that one day I went to Costco and the caregiver told me to park my car in the back. And when I parked there, I noticed about wire. Immediately hmm. I was in Auschwitz. Hmm. Even today, however, I go through the valley of the shadow of that. I don't camp there. Hmm. In fact, I appreciate life even more. Hmm. And I decided that I'm going to reclaim my true self, that I don't have to be a successful schizophrenic and trying to please everyone because I had... My secret, I never told anyone I was in Auschwitz because I wanted to be you. I wanted to be a Yankee Doodle Dandy. And this is a wonderful journey that hopefully people can take to revisit the places where you've been and to know that there is no healing without feeling. So you cry it's fine because what comes out to your body doesn't make you ill. What stays in there does. Mm. So there is grieving, feeling, and healing. I was so struck by Edie's correction when she said we don't overcome. With that statement, she's giving me, us, everyone herself, permission to feel what we feel. 
she really, in certain ways, practices radical acceptance, you know, of herself, of others, of feelings. We shouldn't try to bury our feelings. It's fruitless. But at the same time, she doesn't advocate acceptance of situations. You know, she talked about her civil rights activism, and she doesn't advocate acceptance of attitudes. It's our thinking that we can change. It's not our feelings that we can change. It's a distinction that I think is really, really helpful. Also, I just want to say that temptation is how God gives us freedom of choice is my new personal mantra. (laughs) I love that. I love that. (laughs) I love what she says, too, about how she was keeping everything inside because she wanted to be a Yankee Doodle dandy. And she thought if she didn't acknowledge what she was feeling, then she wouldn't be able to fit in. But she's become quite a successful Yankee Doodle dandy. We talked to her about some of her accomplishments. There's a story that you tell in The Gift about your doctorate that I love. You say that you initially resisted getting a PhD because when you finished, you'd be 50. And your advisor told you, you'll be 50 anyway. Anyway, that's what I tell people, (laughs) especially women. You're not in a midlife crisis. You are in a midlife transition. Mm. And you can go back to school. You can write a book. You can really just see how you would like to be remembered. And I want to be remembered that I did everything in my power to see to it that children, grandchildren, I have seven great-grandson, which I consider my best revenge to Hitler. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, oh God, uh, yes. <laughs> I want to do everything in my power so they would never, ever experience what I did. Mm. Yeah. It's prevention. Yeah. It's prevention. That was amazing. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought of your children and your nieces and nephews as your family's best revenge on Hitler? You know, I'm not sure I quite think of it that way, but I will tell you that my father constantly says that he wanted six children. He only got four. My mom, you know, was done after four. They had four kids in four and a half years, no twins. Wow. But um, he wanted six. And he doesn't say one for every million Jews killed, but I think that that is part of what drives the number six. I think he very much thinks of having a lot of children as a revenge on Hitler. Which, of course, makes perfect sense. Yeah. On a less sober note, I love what Edie says about not letting your age decide for you whether or not you'll do something, because you're going to be that age anyway. Yes. I find it so, so helpful. And it connects with something else she says in the book that I absolutely love. She says, it doesn't take courage to strive for perfection. It takes courage to be average. Yes. That one (laughs) leaped out at me too. Which is so true. You know, I... I'm not even 100% sure I understand fully what she means, but I will say there's so much that i not even average at, I'm terrible at. You know, I I have no physical coordination. You know, if I go to a Zumba class or something, for example, I'm hands down the worst person in the class, but I love it. It's so much fun. And I would have avoided that to the ends of the earth as a kid. There was so much energy spent on not doing anything that I wouldn't be good at. Mm -hmm. The striving for perfection was what I did. It wasn't courageous. It was just 
a way of being. But going in and doing something that you're average or below average at and enjoying it, it is scary and it's also really rewarding. Yeah, it means that you have to accept your imperfections and you have to accept that maybe you will never be any good at whatever that thing is that you're doing (laughs) and that that's okay. If you can enjoy yourself knowing that you'll never be any good at it, there's liberation in that actually. It's hard to do, but it's ultimately liberating. I also believe that the people in the Zumba class take enjoyment from seeing someone who's so bad at it, enjoying it. That's the impression that I get. (laughs) Yeah, there's also something, as I get older, one of the things I love is the low bar. So, you know, you show up at the really difficult exercise class in your 20s and you'd better work hard. You show up at the really hard exercise class in your 50s and you just know that everyone else in the room is thinking... Isn't it so great that she's there? Wow. (laughs) Wow. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, yes, it's so great that I'm here. (laughs) And I think that's the perfect note to end this episode. Um, So that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Edie at dredithegar.com. Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.